This morning, as we turn to John's Gospel, we come to another one of Jesus' I am sayings. There are seven of them in total, and as we've looked at this book so far, we've seen four of them. Previously, we have heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. Those I am sayings are not evidence that Jesus couldn't decide who he was. It is not the case that he was constantly searching for the best way to describe himself and kept changing his mind. Not at all. Each of Jesus' I am sayings points to a different aspect of who he is. Just as each of the seven signs recorded in John's gospel reveal an aspect of Jesus' glory. The seven signs are not contradictory, they are complementary. Taken together, they build up a picture of the fullness of Jesus' glory. And the I am sayings work the same way. Taken together, they give a comprehensive description of Jesus. And our passage this morning gives the fifth of these sayings. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1077, or in the larger print Bibles, 1668. Before we read, the context here is that Jesus has recently left the city of Jerusalem. He left because his enemies there were trying to kill him. Chapter 10, verse 31, described them picking up stones to stone him. Verse 39 said they tried to seize him. Jesus' life was under serious threat. Why? Well, his opponents gave their reason. In verse 33 of chapter 10, they said, we're going to kill you because you claim to be God. That claim was blasphemy as far as they were concerned. And in the face of that murderous hostility, Jesus cleared out of Jerusalem. He headed across the Jordan River to a place about 110 miles away from Jerusalem. And that's where we rejoin things now, in chapter 11, verse 1, and we're going to read through to verse 27. Now, a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? 
Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is God's word. And, of course, there is more to come in this particular incident. I'm gone next Sunday, but we'll plan to pick this up again in two weeks' time. For now, though, there's plenty for us to pay attention to in just these verses. And the truth presented to us in verses 1 to 16 is that Jesus, our good shepherd, loves us and is not bound by our desires or our fears. Although this passage doesn't mention the words good shepherd, that was the description Jesus used of himself throughout chapter 10. And I think that is presupposed in what goes on here in chapter 11. Here, we have the good shepherd in action. But our initial reaction here may be to question whether he really is being good. Verse 1 introduces a man named Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. They've not been mentioned before in John's gospel, but in verse 2, John says it's the same Mary who poured perfume on the Lord. What's interesting about that is that John isn't going to describe that incident until chapter 12. By mentioning it here before he describes it, John is assuming it's a well-known incident, 
He seems to assume many of his readers will already know about it before he writes about it in chapter 12. So this is a well-known family. And they are well appreciated as well. Later in this passage, we read that many people travel the two miles from Jerusalem to Bethany to comfort Martha and Mary. This family is well-known and well-loved by their fellow Jews. And this family is well-known and well-loved by Jesus. Verse 3 tells us when Lazarus becomes ill, his sisters know where to find Jesus, even though he's moved far from the area. And the message they send to Jesus is, Lord, the one you love is ill. Verse 5 will confirm that, yes, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This family know that Jesus loves them. And it's safe to assume in verse 3, as they send their message to him, they do it hoping he will do something. They expect he will do something. Why would Jesus not do something? once he learns that Lazarus, whom he loves, is ill. Apparently, their message to Jesus doesn't suggest what Jesus should do, but later in the passage, we'll learn what they expect him to do. Later, both sisters will separately say exactly the same thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That tells us what they expected to happen when they sent their message to Jesus. Jesus will come right away and he will heal his dear friend Lazarus. He will prevent Lazarus from dying. But Jesus does neither of those things. Look again at verse 4. When he heard this, when he got the message, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Before we try to understand verse 4, let's think carefully about what verses 5 and 6 tell us. Verse 5 emphasizes the point that Jesus loves these two sisters and their brother Lazarus. He is their good shepherd. And that seems totally out of tune with what verse 6 tells us. Jesus loved this family and so, an even better translation might be, therefore, Jesus loved them, therefore, when he got their message that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus' dear friend is ill, Jesus could help, and Jesus does nothing. How would you explain that? Would you explain it as a loving thing to do? Would you say this is the good shepherd taking care of his sheep? 
We'll look back to verse 4 and notice how Jesus himself explains the situation. He says, Lazarus' illness will not end in death. The sense of that is, ultimately this will not end in death. The purpose of what's going on is not death. Lazarus' illness is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So somehow, this is happening so that God's glory will be displayed in this situation. It will be displayed through his son, Jesus. Jesus' words and actions in this situation will reveal God's greatness and goodness. That is the motivation and purpose of what Jesus does and does not do in this situation. And that purpose does not conflict at all with Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But it does conflict with Mary and Martha's desires and expectations of Jesus, their good shepherd. They want and expect Jesus to do something right away when he gets their message. They didn't send that message just so Jesus would be up to date with their situation. They sent the message because they had something they desperately wanted him to do in their situation. We learn later what that was. Stop our brother from dying. They didn't spell that out in the message. They assumed it. We know you love our brother, Jesus, and so it goes without saying you'll stop him from dying. But what happens is Jesus waits until Lazarus is dead. Then he sets out to go to this family he loves. That's the implication of verse 11. After waiting for two days, Jesus receives a message or he receives a prompt from his father. Lazarus is now dead. Now's the time for you to go to Bethany. Jesus loves this family. He is their good shepherd. When he gets their message, he's not being lazy. He's not being inattentive. He is not being disengaged. He is working to a different plan. Jesus' actions are not bound by the desires of this family. He's working to a plan and a timetable they are not aware of. That does not at all conflict with his love for them. But it does conflict with their desires and expectations for what Jesus ought to do in their situation. And this morning, you and I might not want to hear this, but it is exactly the same for us. Everything John's gospel has told us is true about Jesus being our good shepherd. He does care deeply for every single one of his sheep. But his actions and his timetable are not constrained by our desires. Jesus loves us, but that does not mean he is duty-bound to do what we want. Even if what we want is good, and even if we really, really, really want it. For some of us, accepting this might mean a change in our understanding of God's love. 
We might think, how could Jesus love me and not give me what I want? Isn't love about giving me what I want? Isn't that what Jesus is there for? Isn't that his job? Are you willing to accept that Jesus can love you and be your good shepherd and know all about your situation and what you want in it and yet not give you what you want? Are you willing to accept that he can love you and be your good shepherd and yet operate on a very different timetable than the one you have planned for him? Maybe for you the issue is connected to work or relationships or family, health, money. Or maybe what you desire is just a bit of clarity about what God's purpose is in your situation. Whatever your desire is in your particular situation, will you accept that Jesus can love you and be your good shepherd and at the same time reserve the right not to do what you want? Here in John chapter 11, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are not the only people who have expectations of Jesus in this situation. The disciples have expectations too. They were with Jesus recently when he nearly got executed in Jerusalem. And no doubt the disciples were mightily relieved when Jesus did the wise thing and left that bad situation far behind, uh, 110 miles behind. We saw earlier that's the distance between Jerusalem and the region of Judea and the area Jesus retreated to on the other side of the Jordan River. And as far as the disciples are concerned, 110 miles is just about a safe distance from Jerusalem. Considering the murderous determination of Jesus' enemies there. No doubt the disciples have been enjoying the welcome Jesus has received away from Jerusalem. The end of chapter 10 told us in this area many believe in him. And no one's trying to stone him. Or the disciples. But unknown to the disciples, Jesus has received this message about Lazarus. He has waited until the signal from his father that Lazarus is dead. And now out of the blue, he says to his disciples in verse 7, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back? which being interpreted means, and you plan on dragging us along with you? The disciples want Jesus to keep them away from what they fear, not take them into what they fear. But that's exactly what Jesus is planning to do. Later this passage tells us the village of Bethany where the family of Lazarus live is less than two miles from Jerusalem. It's almost a stone's throw from Jerusalem. Which is not a nice thought considering how many in Jerusalem want to throw stones at Jesus. And in verse 8, the disciples' reaction to Jesus shows they hope that as their good shepherd who loved them, he would not lead them into situations they fear. 
They liked it when he took them far away from the red zone of Jerusalem. They do not like it at all when they discover he's leading them back into the red zone. Now you and I might not be afraid of the same thing as these disciples, but don't all of us have situations that we dread? We may pray about those situations or we may not, but if we do pray about them, don't we tend to pray along these lines? Lord, you know how I feel about that. Whatever it is, you can fill in your own blank. You know how I feel about that, and I know you surely couldn't want me to go through that. That's the one thing I couldn't face. So, Lord, I'm trusting you not to take me through it. I know you love me, and because you love me, you'll help me avoid what I fear. Won't you? We want to negotiate. We come up with our own prayer version of that meatloaf song. Meatloaf's version was, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Our prayer version is, I could face anything with you, Lord, but I couldn't face that. But does our good shepherd who loves us reserve the right to lead us into that situation we fear? Yes, he does. He's not restricted or restrained by our fears. And his purpose is not to destroy us, but to strengthen us. A bit further on here in our passage, down in verse 15, Jesus will tell his disciples he's taking them back into the Jerusalem red zone so that they may believe, meaning believe in him. That's what he says further on, but his immediate answer to these fearful disciples is a bit more cryptic. In verse 9, they've just said, are we really going back there? And Jesus replies to them in verse 9, are, not 12, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. That just repeats a point Jesus made back in chapter 9. The day connected to Jesus, the day is the time before his death on the cross. That is when night will come. And the application here to the disciples is that they are safe so long as they have Jesus with them. He is the light of the world. He's safe until the time comes for his death on the cross. And they are safe if they're with him, doing his Father's will. Of course, the disciples do not find that very comforting because as far as they're concerned, this journey to Bethany could well be what leads to Jesus' death. And where would that leave them? And so after Jesus has explained the purpose of the journey is to raise Lazarus from death and the purpose of that is to strengthen the disciples' faith, after Jesus has explained that to them, in verse 16... Thomas, 
gives a little motivational speech to the other disciples. Let us also go that we may die with him. What do you make of those words from Thomas? Well, we might say they are courageous words. And that is certainly true. Thomas's words are in the spirit of the charge of the Light Brigade. You may have come across that poem in school. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. There is something rousing in Thomas's words. A generation or two ago, we might have said they are manly words. And we would have said that positively. We might also say Thomas is being realistic here. And in the grand scheme of things, that is true as well, because eventually many of these disciples will die as they bear witness to Jesus in a hostile world. Thomas is being courageous, he's being realistic, and you and I can learn something from his willingness to follow Jesus, even into things we fear, even into death. But it's also true that Thomas is missing something. Because the good shepherd Thomas is following has more for him than death. Those who follow Jesus, the good shepherd, might follow him into the valley of death. But the valley of death is not our destination. As Christians, we are called to be strong and courageous. But our hope does not consist in having a courageous end. We do not believe the pinnacle for us would be to go down in a blaze of glory. As Christians, our hope is infinitely richer than that. And that hope is spelled out in the last part of our passage. Jesus, our good shepherd, provides fuller life and greater safety than we could ever dare to hope for. Verse 17 says that on Jesus' arrival in Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Today, we're not actually looking at the miracle itself, but when we do, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll see the significance of those four days. The reason Jesus, at his father's command, delayed his arrival until Lazarus had been in the tomb for that long. Briefly, the reason is, by that time, the body had begun to decompose. There could be no question of a resuscitation when Lazarus emerged from the tomb. The miracle was beyond doubt. But that's for next time. For now, let's notice Jesus' conversation here with Martha. She comes to meet Jesus while her sister Mary stays at home. We've already commented on Martha's words to Jesus here. They reveal her expectation when she'd sent her message to Jesus a few days ago. Look at verse 21 again. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Here in verse 22, Martha is not expecting Jesus to raise her brother this day. We know that because later, when Jesus tells them to open the tomb, at that point, Martha objects. She believes that what they will find will be too unpleasant. So here in verse 22, Martha is simply expressing her general confidence in Jesus. We know from verse 21 that Jesus has not acted according to her desires, but still Martha trusts him. And when Jesus says her brother will rise again, Martha shows a good biblical hope in what the future holds for God's people. They will be raised at the last day. Martha's hope is good. But Jesus has more for her than she has dared to hope for. He has more safety for the disciples than they have dared to hope for. When they wanted Jesus to stay away from the red zone in and around Jerusalem. Look at Jesus' words in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Verses 25 and 26 are not just saying the same thing in different words. They explain the two parts of the statement Jesus makes at the start of verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. That is not saying the same thing two different ways. So let's separate them out. In the middle of verse 25, Jesus explains what he means by I am the resurrection. He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. That is essentially what Martha has just said. Jesus states that those who believe in him may die physically, but they will one day be raised to resurrection life. They will live in the future in new resurrection bodies. But verse 26 makes a different point. It explains what Jesus means when he says, I am the life. Jesus explains that by saying in verse 26, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. There is a genuine sense in which men and women who believe in Jesus and receive the life he gives will never die. The eternal life Jesus gives us begins now. The moment we trust in him. And that eternal life will never be interrupted, paused, or otherwise put on hold. Our physical body may die to await renewal on resurrection day. But whatever death and decay our body may go through, we already have resurrection life in Christ. And so we, the person that is us, will never die. Not for a moment. 
It's on the strength of this truth that later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can write, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's saying, I have life in Christ now and physical death does not interrupt or pause that. It means more life in Christ, in his presence. Elsewhere, Paul writes that to be away from the body means not being in some kind of shadowy waiting room, passing time in unconsciousness till resurrection day. No, Paul says for the Christian, being away from the body means being at home with the Lord. Book of Hebrews says it means that our spirits are made perfect. So yes, as Christians, we look forward to resurrection day and those new bodies. But as we look forward to resurrection day, we do not grit our teeth at the thought of what comes between now and resurrection day. We know that whatever may happen to our body, we have already entered into eternal life. And we know the eternal life we have in Christ will continue through and beyond our physical death. As Jesus says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Can you see how Jesus provides fuller life and greater safety than we could ever dare to hope for? More than just a few more years of this life. More than deliverance from immediate danger. Martha and Mary desired improved physical health for their brother Lazarus. Here Jesus speaks of eternal life in himself. The disciples wanted more of the safety that came from being far away from Jerusalem. Here, Jesus speaks of eternal safety in himself. The kind of security that even physical death cannot disrupt. And this is provided only by Jesus. Apart from him, there is no resurrection and life. Now, Martha may not grasp all that Jesus means by resurrection and life. But she does grasp the truth that her friend Jesus has more to give than she ever dared hope for. She grasps the truth that the one who can give this much can only be, verse 27, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now this certainly does not mean Jesus is unconcerned about our present difficulties and fears. Absolutely not. He is at work in the midst of them. As he's at work in this situation in Bethany. We'll see that when we look at the rest of this passage another time. Yes, Jesus is concerned about what we face today. But his purpose is bigger than just sorting the things we'd like him to sort today. Jesus has greater things for us than that. 
And in the present, he is working to build our faith and hope in those greater things. And so as Christians, we can learn to sing through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a full salvation. All is well. We expect a bright tomorrow. All will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. All is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying. Yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. Let's stand and sing this together and to one another. All must be well. And then, O oh, perfect love.
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.